0: Good morning everybody, I'm so glad you all could be here, I hope you all had a good Christmas and uh, I got this sweater for Christmas and uh, that's kind of a reminder that I'm in a different stage of life when I now am excited about getting clothes, when I was younger that was like the last thing I wanted but now I'm excited about it, I hope that you um, all had a chance to relax and maybe catch your breath a little bit, maybe take a deep breath. You now This is a time of the year that is unique as we are here between Christmas and now the new year. It can be a time where maybe we start to step back from life and we ask some questions about our life. Like here's one that we might ask, what did I accomplish in 2019? As you look back over your shoulder at these past 12 months, you might be looking back and evaluating what did you accomplish this year? Of course, you might also ask the question where you look forward, what will you accomplish in 2020? These are really good questions. They can be really healthy questions. A good practice to get in can be to remember, to evaluate, and then to plan ahead. Those are good things, but I want to just tell you a little bit about me, if I can be autobiographical for a minute. Those questions are actually dangerous for me to ask. Let me tell you why. Because much of my life is fueled by this desire inside of me to want to make a name for myself. I have this desire to want to be noticed for what I've done. I want you to look at me and say, wow, that was really impressive. People like Augustine long ago and Martin Luther, after him, had this Latin expression that they used that means to be curved in on yourself. It's a life where instead of you being outwardly focused, you are completely internally focused so that everything is about you in your life instead of it being about God and others outside of you. This is what I wrestle with as I seek to make a name for myself. So, when I ask those questions about how this past year was and how this next year might go, it's very self focused. Now, again, I don't want to imply or suggest that you have this same problem that I do, but maybe it's worth asking yourself, anyways have you ever wanted to make a name for yourself? Have you ever wanted to be noticed by others for what you had have achieved or accomplished in life? Have you ever wanted to be great? Well, in case you have, I want to turn your attention this morning to Psalm 8. The ancient words of this Hebrew poem have something to speak into our lives today in the 21st century as we get ready to wrap up one year, start another year, wrap up one decade, and start another decade. The words of Psalm 8, in fact, speak of a great name. But it turns out that it's not my name and it's not your name. Let's take a look at the text this morning. Now, as I go through it, the words will be up on the screen. However, when we read through it right now, they will not. So if you have it in your Bibles, I encourage you to follow along with me as I read through the entire psalm, which goes like this. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, the psalm of David. By the way, Gittith, we have no idea what that means. It's a a musical term of some kind, but the good news is it doesn't really affect how we read the psalm. Verse 1 O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the Son of Man, How majestic is your name in all the earth? Would you pray with me? Father, as we enter into these next few moments of examining what you have written to us, God, I ask that we would hear your voice this morning, that these words that are so ancient would have such a contemporary significance into our lives right now, this morning, even as we sit here. Lord, would you speak, and would you do your work in our hearts, and may we see, Lord, how your name is truly majestic, and I pray this all in that powerful name, amen. Well, again, verse one starts off, "O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If you were with us for the series that we did a while, a while back out of the book of Exodus, then we talked about this word Lord that you see in all capital letters. It designates the word Yahweh, the name that God had revealed himself as to Moses. It means I am. It it speaks to God's divine and powerful presence everywhere. And here David says, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. There's a literary device going on here that we use today too it's called a merism and a merism an example of that is lock stock and barrel i've searched high and low for better or worse for richer for poorer in sickness and in health these are merisms which they mean that from one extreme to the next and everywhere in between so here what we see is that david is saying that god's name is majestic in all the earth All of the created order, God's name, is majestic inside of that. But not only that, it is also that His glory is even above the heavens. The fact that it's above the heavens likely refers to the spiritual realm. So what David is expressing here is that God's majesty and God's glory are everywhere present. Whether we're in the physical realm, the spiritual realm, or anywhere in between, God's name is awesome. That is where we start off here when we evaluate this idea of God's great name. Verse two, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. I just gotta be brutally honest with you. This verse is really difficult to understand. Uh, You can look at a stack of 10 commentaries and find out that they all agree on the one point about this, which is that it's really difficult to understand. One of the things that's most clear, though, is that when babies and infants are talked about in Scripture, it is usually in the context of oppression. Usually, it's when they are being victimized. These people who are the most vulnerable members of humanity are the ones who are being victimized and out of their mouth comes cries. They are the ones who are entirely unable to defend themselves, to protect themselves, to speak up for themselves. Even the word infants here means quite literally a baby who is nursing. This is a human being who is unable to even provide for itself, to advocate for itself. The most vulnerable members of society are on display here. But then the question is, how in the world does that relate to God establishing strength? Or as some other translations put it, a stronghold because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. That's really where the question lies. That's where the mystery is in this verse. Perhaps we could look back to the story of Exodus again and find a clue here maybe an example. If you remember back to that story, the king of Egypt orders the people of Israel to cast their children into the Nile River. If you and I were on the scene at that time, we would be wondering, God, why are you not acting against this? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why don't you hear the cries of these children? Of course, now we can look back on that. In 2019, we can look back and we can see how God was, in fact, delivering his people away from the the work of his enemies. We can also see it around a thousand years after this psalm was written. In the town of Bethlehem, Herod the Great ordering the murder of every boy, baby, two years of age and under, Again, if we were there on the scene, we would wonder, God, why don't you hear, why don't you listen? Don't you know what's going on? But now, in 2019, we can look back on that and see God was actually doing something incredibly powerful against his enemies while that was going on. God is the one who hears the cries of the weak. Paul puts it this way in the book of 1 Corinthians. He says this, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God is the one who takes action in a way that is unlike any other. God hears the cries of the most vulnerable, the ones being oppressed, and He acts on their behalf. Verse 3, this scene shifts. It says this, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, The moon and the stars which you have set in place stop there for just a minute. David goes out under the canopy of the nighttime sky and as he looks up, he is completely blown away by the scene in front of him. David's a shepherd before he's a king and as a shepherd, he probably spent night after night outside underneath the canopy of the stars by himself with plenty of opportunities to look up and to be amazed He's not just observing here, he's not just seeing something, but he's considering what he's looking at. He's looking for the significance behind what he sees. We have the advantage today of being able to do that in new ways that that David could have never fathomed. If you go out to the NASA website it helps you describe some of the, and understand some of the spectacular things about our universe. I was up in the mountains recently with a group of other dads at a junior high retreat. And there, we didn't have much light pollution to contend with. And I remember standing around the campfire with some of these other dads. We're looking up into the sky and we're wondering, what is that? It's like a haze up above our heads. And of course, what we were seeing is our galaxy spectacular this picture was apparently taken from rocky mountain national park not too far away from where i was on that night but nasa's website if you try to understand more will will teach you some things that are pretty cool like if you take a quarter and you try to imagine our solar system so the sun mercury venus earth mars all the way out And if you could reduce our solar system so that it shrunk down to scale and fit on the surface of this quarter, then if you took another quarter and you shrunk down the nearest star in our galaxy to the sun, these two quarters would need to be spaced out two soccer fields away from each other. I don't know if you can even comprehend that. Scientists also tell us that if you were to travel from one end of our galaxy, the Milky Way, to another, it would take you 100,000 years, not in your minivan, but traveling at the speed of light. Back before 1924, conventional wisdom was that there is only one galaxy in all of the universe. Edwin Hubble, though, presented evidence to the contrary and showed that there are actually other universes out there in fact, scientists now believe that there are billions and billions of galaxies. Our universe alone may have up to 200 billion stars inside of it. How amazing. Of course, now, we, we don't only look out from the Earth at the universe, but we can look back at the Earth. Back in 1968, on Christmas Eve, the astronauts of Apollo 8 snapped this picture called Earthrise, a very famous picture from the 20th century shows us how beautiful and apparently delicate our planet looks from that perspective. Then in 1990, on Valentine's Day, I don't know why it's always a holiday, but on Valentine's Day, Voyager 1 was turned around at the request of Carl Sagan, the astronomer, to take a picture of the Earth from a cool 4 billion miles away from the planet. And our precious Earth, is just a tiny speck on the screen in this shaft of light here's what carl sagan has to say who are we we find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of a universe in which there are far more galaxies than people have you ever heard this before Can you relate to this before or now even? Here's what David says. David has no problem ascribing the majesties that he sees before him to God. He says that they are the work of God's fingers. But then the question comes to mind. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for Him. Who are we, God? This is what I mean when David is considering. He's not just looking at it. He's not just stargazing, but he's looking at the meaning behind it. Again, from Carl Sagan, this is the meaning that he saw when he looked back at the earth. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Have you ever felt this way? Like God, how in the world, if the universe is so big, so vast, so incomprehensible, then I must be very, very small. Maybe you feel this way because there are 7.8 billion other people on the planet. Maybe you feel this way because life is so short. It feels as though people are here today and gone tomorrow. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you would even consider him or care for him. This word here is a feeling that we can all feel. God, if everything is so vast, why would you even think of me? Really what it comes down to is how insignificant I feel. The dictionary defines that this way. Too small or unimportant to be worth Consideration Maybe that's you this morning. Or maybe that's someone you know. I'd just be completely open with you. I feel this from time to time as well. God, how could my life have such significance? What you do in that moment and in that place is so critical. How are we going to respond when we feel this way, this encounter with reality? How are we going to respond? Because that is a critical question, maybe one of the most critical questions that we need to find the right answer to. And there are all kinds of different answers offered to us in our world. Maybe we just need to achieve and accomplish our way into significance. Maybe we can make a name for ourselves that will help us achieve it. If we could just perform the right way. What are we going to do when we're in this place? Let's look at what David offers us. Here's what he says in verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. This word yet here is just a little line in the Hebrew. It's just a tiny little stroke of a pin. Yet, this yet is so significant. It might be one of the most important words in all of Scripture because it points us to this amazing contrast from the vastness of the universe to who we are it says that we are a little lower than the heavenly beings. That word for heavenly beings is the word Elohim. Elohim is the word that is often translated, capital G, God. can also be translated as angels, or in this case, heavenly beings. My um, Bible even has a footnote in it that mentions that it could be, or God. The point is, regardless of which word you choose here, That God has made us into this position of tremendous value and importance and worth. The words here, crowned, glory, and honor, speak to the image of a king or a queen in a palace. It's like the image of somebody seated on a throne and an official coming along and placing a crown upon that person's head. God has crowned us with glory and honor. And then as we read on, we see here after verse five, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. This is language taken straight out of the book of Genesis. I'm going to turn there, it'll be up on the screen here, but here's what is said out of the book of Genesis in verse 26 of chapter 1. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, all the creeps. God has given us this position that is unlike any other. In fact, you could say that the king of the universe has made us rulers with him on the earth. It's the image of a vice regent being appointed by a king. And that vice regent is appointed because the king wants other people, other officials to have authority inside of that kingdom. That's what God has done with us, that he has given us this authority to Make us rulers on the earth, over all of the domestic animals, over all of the wild animals, even the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and all of the sea creatures. God has given us this authority and dominion to exercise over all of it. You see, God has given us a position that is already greater than anything we could ever become. God has already made us more valuable than anything we could ever achieve for ourselves. It's already done for us because He has made us rulers with Him on the earth. It's a spectacular thing to even begin to try to fathom. There are some implications of this. For example, in the way that we exercise our role as the ones who rule on earth, it calls for us as we live within God's kingdom, to exercise a level of care and concern for that kingdom and how we take care of this environment, this place that God has set us over. There are all kinds of implications of that. Second of all, though, it points us to the dignity of humanity. Every life, from the womb to the deathbed, has dignity. We don't get this right all the time, do we? Every value before, every life is valued before it has even left the womb. As a child, on into maturity, on into being middle-aged, and on into those years of life where maybe bodies begin to break down, where minds begin to break down, every life at every stage has tremendous value and dignity to it. I heard another pastor named Chris Dolson preach on this text once and he did this that I thought was so important. I wanted to share it with you because he he pointed back to this image of all of the stars and how valuable they are and we, we could look at the stars and we could say, wow, what a spectacular scene just to think about the wonder of all of this. It blows our minds to even consider it. But then because of what Psalm 8 tells us, because of what Genesis 1 tells us, we should be equally amazed when we see this. The masses of humanity. When I look at this, I see a mess. But when God sees this, he looks at his creation, his vice regents, the ones he has set to rule on the earth. And it should be equally amazing to us. My wife, Katie, bless her heart. She loves to go to festivals. She loves to be in and around crowds. If she sees one, she runs into it. If I see a crowd, I run away from it. Be like Katie. (laughs) She is the one who sees this mass of humanity and thinks and sees aspects of it that I have more difficulty seeing. But when we see this, we should be equally amazed at God's work, the work of his hands that he's accomplished. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Do you believe that? Good. I want to tell you, though, we don't always see it, do we? When you walk out on the sidewalks of Boulder, or drive in the streets of Boulder, or Louisville, or Lafayette, or Longmont, or Niwot, or... Anywhere in between? Is God's name majestic in that place in a way that you can see and experience and be reminded of? What about in your workplace at the office on a Monday morning? Is God's name majestic there? What about in your homes? Is God's name majestic there all the time? I can tell you, I have moments in my home where it makes you wonder. See, as I look at this psalm and I try to put it up against the reality that I experience on a day-to-day basis, I notice that there's a little bit of a difference or a gap between what this psalm claims and what I experience on a day-to-day basis. When I look and I I hear about the stories that happen around our world and I, I know that out of the mouth of babies and infants are coming cries today just like they were back in this day, And I don't see this kind of justice being done on their behalf. When I look out and I I look at the animals that we have been set over, I hear messages in our culture about how we are just like the animals. And we live just like the animals. In fact, we should follow our instincts just as an animal might. Because we are no different than them. When I look out, I don't see this reality of God's name being majestic in all the earth. But the Bible knows that. In fact, if you turn to the book of Hebrews, you see this acknowledged firsthand here in front of our eyes. It's going to be up on the screen so you don't actually have to turn there. The author of Hebrews is writing in such a way that he wants us to know that Jesus is unlike any other being. Jesus is above the angels. He is higher than any created being. In fact, in verse 2 of chapter 1, or verse 3, excuse me, he says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Think about that in light of Psalm 8. When we're talking about the works of God's fingers, The being the stars and the moon. That we can now, because of what we read here in Hebrews and other places in the New Testament, we can see that Jesus is the one who is creator. That Jesus is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. But then, into chapter 2, here's what the author of Hebrews says. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So talking about not the current day, but the day to come when Christ returns. It has been testified somewhere. I hope you can answer where that place is. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So the author of Hebrews here is applying Psalm 8 to the life of Christ. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Jesus has sovereignty and dominion over all things. And here's where our hope comes from as we experience a reality that can seem out of step with what the Psalm tells us. He says, at present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. Amen? When we go out into the streets, when we go into our workplaces, even in our homes sometimes, we notice that what Psalm 8 tells us is sometimes different than what we're actually experiencing in the real world. So we don't yet see everything in subjection to Him. But we see Him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The most fitting way we can end this service is by taking communion and that's exactly what we're going to do in just a moment. What this text is showing us is that by the death of Christ we know that Christ is coming back To make all things right in our world that would oppose this image and this, this picture of what God has created us to be. Do we know that God has made us to be rulers on the earth? Yes. But do we now live in a world that is frustrated by sin because of that? Yes. We experience great difficulty in trying to live into who God has made us to be. We don't see it when we go outside of these walls often. But we know by faith in what Christ has accomplished through his death, that when he returns, we will fully live that out without the hindrance of sin in our way. We will get to experience what it means to live in the reality of being God's image bearers to rule and to reign with him in a creation that has been made new. That's what we look forward to. And this time of year where we stand between the advents, the advent when Christ came, to die, and the advent when he returns to rule and to reign on the earth. Alongside of him, we get to also enjoy that privilege as well, where we live into and experience the full reality of Psalm 8. So as we take from the bread this morning and as we take from the cup this morning, I pray that we would all have a sense of gratitude of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf so that we can live into who he has made us to be. I pray that that is our experience this morning as we do that. If you are helping with communion, I'd like to invite you to come forward and let's pray. Father, we are so grateful, Lord, that you would make yourself a little lower than the heavenly beings, to live in our place as the perfect human and the perfect God, to live the life that we are powerless to live on our own, to conquer the power of sin and death through your own death so that we, Lord, can experience true life. Lord, when we look around, we do not see that reality yet. It is not yet present, but we do see you. We see the sacrifice that you made on the cross on our behalf to secure a future, Lord, where we can rule and we can reign alongside of you in your glory, Lord. And Lord, until that day, we just thank you that your name is majestic even when we don't see it, even when we don't realize it. So God, as we take communion now, my prayer is that this would be a time where we worship you in our own hearts and minds, where we celebrate what you have done at such a high cost on our behalf. We pray this all now for your glory and in your name. Amen.